please turn with me to the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And we will read together the first 12 verses of this chapter. The story of the, the appearing of the wise men who have come from the east just As a little point of information, this narrative of this visit occurs some months, perhaps even as long as two years after the birth of Jesus. Um, You'll notice in the reading that Jesus, with his mother Mary and with Joseph, are now in a house, no longer uh, in a stable, in a manger, uh, but in a house, and so be aware that some time has passed since what Matthew recorded for us at the end of chapter 1. So beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2 of Matthew. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, And have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, your word. It's about you, but it comes from you. And we We marvel at the mystery of all of that. We stand in awe of it, but we believe that you've given this word to us for our good and for your glory. And now we need your spirit, Lord Jesus. We need you to give your spirit to us, to open our eyes and our ears and and make our hearts pliable so that your word might do its work. Come, Lord Jesus, hear this prayer. Grant your spirit. We ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. 
My guess is that uh, most of you have taken down your Christmas trees and begun putting away your Christmas lights. Um, in all good humor, let me say shame on you. This is January 6th, which happens to be my mother's 86th birthday, which is very important for me. But even more important, uh, this is Epiphany. It is the 12th of the 12 days of Christmas. It is the last day of the Christmas season. So next year, keep your tree up, keep your lights out until January 6th. And keep on declaring to people that the light has come into the world. This is epiphany. What does epiphany mean? Well, it comes from a couple of little Greek words. One means to make manifest, and the other is a little preposition that sort of puts the verb on steroids. It's like giving it a shot of caffeine. It's like a, it's like a super manifestation, a hyper manifestation. It's an over-the-top manifestation. That's what epiphany is. And, and what does epiphany celebrate? Well... Epiphany celebrates the manifestation, the really significant manifestation of Jesus as a savior for the nations. As a savior for the nations, plural. Uh, As a savior for the Irish and the English and the Scots. And the Vietnamese and the Laotians and the Bolivians and the Argentinians and the Palestinians and the Syrians, as well as the Jews. We celebrate Epiphany because those who came to see Jesus were Gentiles. And as I trust we'll see through this a little bit of time in God's word this morning. They represent us. They represent us. Gentiles who have come to worship the king. And this day, this day of epiphany, after the significance of, of Easter and Resurrection Day, and then Ascension and Pentecost, Without those days, none of the rest of these days mean anything at all. Without the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ and the rule of rule and reign of Christ, without those days, Epiphany, Christmas Day, Advent, none of those days means anything. If Jesus just died and stayed in the ground, the whole thing is meaningless. But after, in order of importance, Resurrection Day and Ascension Day and Pentecost, this day ought to be your favorite day in the whole year because it's about you. Because most of you in this room, as far as I know, are Gentiles. There may be a few of you, I think there are a few who have some some Jewish connections, some Jewish blood coursing through your veins. You need to remember that this Savior who came isn't just for you. The Savior who came is for me, an Irishman, a Gentile. So this day really should be a favorite day, a day of incredible celebration and thanksgiving for you. Oh, and forgive me that I didn't mention the Dutch. Don't take it personally. 
Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, some of it explicit and some of it more subtle. So I want to ask some questions of this passage. What is Matthew showing us here? That's the first question. What is Matthew showing us here in this second chapter? And, and beneath Matthew is the human author. What is God showing us here? What, what does God, the Holy Spirit, who is the divine author of all 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, the divine author who employed real human authors, what does the Holy Spirit want for us to see here? The answer is simply this. The Jesus of Nazareth, who has come to be the Savior of the nations, the Son of Mary, is the fulfillment of what is promised in the Old Testament. That's really important. That's really important. And I know it may be one of those things that sort of goes without saying. And yet I I will tell you that I think there's a considerable misunderstanding about the exact nature of, of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And there's a great pervasive misunderstanding of the nature of the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments. So while it may go without saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's promised in the Old Testament, we need to take that very seriously and really begin to think through the implications of it. Here's the principal principal implication. From Genesis to Maps, one story is unfolding. One story. Promise and deliverance. Promise and fulfillment. What Matthew wants us to understand and see is that this Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Son of Mary, is the fulfillment of what is anticipated in the Old Testament. I have a neighbor with whom Barb and I are friendly, and the week that Lucy was here, I was standing outside my house, and she drove by, and And my neighbor happens to be Jewish, and she waved at me as I was holding my granddaughter. And a couple days later, she came by again, and Lucy was gone, and my heart was sad. And she stopped and rolled down her window, and she said, was that your granddaughter? I said, yes, it was. I said, it'll happen for you someday. And she said, I'm not so sure. And I said, no, you have daughters. It'll happen for you someday. And then she said... And Messiah is coming, too. And then she rolled up her window, and I'm in my driveway saying, whoa, 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 wait, 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 can we talk? (laughs) Because you know what I wanted to say to her. You're absolutely right. He is coming. And he's already come. That's what Matthew wants us to see. That's what he wants us to understand. Look at all of the ways in which Matthew shows us, just in these first couple of chapters, by citing Old Testament references that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. Chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. From Isaiah 7, 14. 
The verse just ahead of that, verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the translation or the transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. What Matthew is doing is showing us that Jesus is the greater Joshua. Jesus is the greater deliverer. That's what Joshua means. It means deliverer. He's presenting Jesus to us as deliverer and redeemer. And in fact, as we've confessed and prayed this morning, also friend. Jesus is the friend to those whom he delivers. Jesus is the friend to those whom he redeems. We looked at it. My son-in-law looked at it with us in Psalm 23. I referred to it on Christmas Eve. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the greater Joshua, and he delivers us into the greater promised land, not an earthly land, in the midst of earthly nations where things pass away, but the heavenly and eternal new heaven and new earth, he delivers us into that land. And then following this passage, chapter 2, verse 15, after Herod recognizing that he has been deceived, begins to plot a strategy to destroy the child who has been born. An angel appears and speaks to Joseph Joseph, and tells Joseph to leave and to flee to Egypt. And then verse 15 we read, As God then summoned Joseph and the family to return, it would be in fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. This is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. It's a quotation from Hosea chapter 11, the first verse. It's so wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to my next set of lectures with my good friend Robert Greenberg, who is a friend to me, but I'm not yet a friend to him. I hope I get to be someday. And, and this series of lectures is called The 30 Greatest Orchestral Works. And I listened to the first lecture this last week on Antonio Vivaldi's Four Concerti We Know as the Four Seasons. Now, I've heard the music. I know the music. But to listen to him talk about the music, you realize there's just a ton of stuff that's going on beneath the surface of the music. And it's so rich and rewarding to begin learning about this stuff. The Bible works in a similar way. There is so much that is rich and wonderful and colorful and filled with interesting little nuances. And this is one of them. What Matthew is telling us is that Jesus recapitulates in his life the whole story of Israel's redemption. And if you want to connect a couple of dots, here are the dots you connect. Jesus' life recapitulates the story of deliverance and redemption, being led out of bondage in Egypt, being cared for in the wilderness, as we see in Matthew's Gospel, where God, by His power, preserves His beloved Son from being destroyed by Herod, cares for Him, directs Him, anoints Him with His Spirit, leading Him every step of the way. Jesus, in the midst of His wilderness, recapitulates the story of Israel until through death and resurrection he ascends to the place of glory where he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. Folks, here's the dot 
that that needs to be connected to this whole idea. It is this New Testament notion that a Christian's identity is Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. You are in the Beloved. And as Jesus recapitulates the story of the Exodus, moving in the direction of the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal promised land, he is rewriting your story. There are the words on the surface of the page, on the surface of the story, and then there's all this wonderful, delightful, amazing, incredible, beautiful color and hue and interaction that's going on beneath the surface. Please, my friends, Please read your Bibles and don't stop reading them. Keep reading them because all of this rich, rich depth of the story that is your story is unfolded in so many beautiful ways across the pages of the scriptures. Out of Egypt, I have called my son out of Egypt, out of bondage, Jesus calls those who belong to him. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is at the center of this whole story. These are the explicit references to the Old Testament. And it goes on in Matthew's gospel. Read the first eight or nine or ten chapters of Matthew's gospel, and you'll see repeatedly these references to the Old Testament. Those are the explicit things. But there's this more subtle stuff that's going on, and it's remarkable as well. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose In the east. Now, I guess we have to deal with the star at least briefly. And let me just say to you that if you read the commentators, the commentators will provide us with a number of different answers to the question what is the nature of this star? Some suggest it to be a particular arrangement of constellations, some suggest that it's a supernova. Some suggest, because this language is used in the Old Testament, some suggest that it's actually an angel appointed for the specific task of giving direction and guidance to these wise men, these magi. I'm not so concerned about the nature of the star. I'm not a star. I'm much more concerned in the wise men. Because I'm a human being like they are. They interest me. And what interests me and fascinates me is the fact that they were able to cite from the Old Testament a reference in Numbers 24. Which is the last of the oracles of Balaam. You remember the story of Balaam? The prophet, you know, Balaam, who who tried to curse Israel, but every time he opened his mouth, he blessed Israel. It's a a stunning story. I mean, it's kind of, okay, don't mess with God and don't mess with the word of God. 
in Balaam's last oracle. This is what God says through him. Let me read verses 14 through 19. And you listen, you just listen for some notes that will sound familiar to you. Listen for some notes that will sound familiar, keeping with the musical metaphor here. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. Apparently, Balaam got the message. Listen and speak what you hear. Verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and shall break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. What are the notes that you hear that are familiar notes from Balaam's last oracle? What about crushing the head of Moab? What about someone who will come and exercise dominion? Who will rule and who will reign? What about one who will dispossess Edom? You know, historically, Along with some others, but historically, Moab and Edom were Israel's arch enemies nearby, close at hand. They had other distant enemies. We'll come to that in a minute. They had other distant enemies. They had Assyria. They had Babylon. They had Egypt to the south. But they had some nearby enemies, Edom and Moab. And here's the promise of a star who will come out of Jacob and who will crush the forehead. In fact, the language literally means the four corners of the head of Moab and dispossess Edom. Now, here's the striking thing. Herod, the king, who hears this question from the wise men, where is the king who is to be born? We've seen his star rising in the east. Herod is an Idumean. This is really interesting. Which is contemporary language for Edomite. And so Herod calls in the, the scholars. Herod's not a Jew. Herod is an Idumean. He is an Edomite. He's a pagan. This is what foreign governments do, don't they? They put, they put your most vilely despised enemy on the throne when they want to rule over you. And here these wise guys show up and ask 
about this one who was born. We've seen his star referencing Numbers 24. Herod calls in the scholars. What is this all about? Where is he going to be born? Have you ever wondered why it was that Herod was so upset? Look, kings don't like being threatened by other kings. That's a starting point for understanding why he's so upset. But I have a hunch. It's not in the text. I can't prove this. But I have a hunch that those scholars who were called in to answer his question may have referenced in his presence Numbers 24. This is where the promise is found of a star who will arise. And this is what is said. The four corners of the head of Moab will be crushed. And Edom will be dispossessed. You're a short timer, Herod. And what does all of that sound like to you? What does all that sound like to you? What are the notes that you hear which you've heard someplace else? Genesis 3.15. When God speaks to the serpent, the invisible power and force behind the most evil of empires, the evil power and force behind Herod, the present incarnation, the local incarnation of everything that stands over against the purpose of God. What does God say to the serpent? Genesis 3.15. He shall crush your head. He shall crush your head. It's subtle, folks. But you understand what Matthew is doing. You understand why God the Holy Spirit inspires this particular narrative to be included in his word. Here's what's going on in keeping with everything we've said across Advent. Here's what's going on. God the Holy Spirit through Matthew is declaring to Herod and the whole world, game on. Game on. The serpent crusher has appeared. And he has appeared in weakness and frailty. He's appeared in humility as a baby. But this one is the one who will crush the head of Moab and dispossess Edom and vanquish all of the enemies of God. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. That's what Matthew is saying. He's saying fulfillment is here. And the Old Testament is like a superhighway with all kinds of signposts along the way. And the farther down that highway you get, the more explicit are the signposts. And when you collect up all of those messages that are on all of those billboards down the superhighway of the Old Testament, by the time you get to Matthew's day, it explodes across redemptive history. That's what's happening in Matthew's Gospel. Here's another one. It's subtle. Don't have time to unpack all of this. But even the genealogy of Jesus, even the genealogy of Jesus points us in this direction. The genealogy that's incorporated into Matthew's Gospel and with which the Gospel begins is structured according to the three great epochs of Israel's history and life. Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to Jesus. Three sets of 14. 
You do the math and see if you think this is a coincidence. Three sets of 14 is also six sets of seven. And what is happening as Matthew structures his genealogy, as God inspires him to do it? Is that just lucky? Coincidental? Nah. What is being said in that genealogy is that Jesus represents the end of the work of God in redemption. He comes at the end of the sixth set of sevens, leading to the seventh seven, leading to the inauguration, the initiation of the eternal Sabbath. Jesus completes the work of redemption in the way that his Father, together with him and with the Spirit, completed the work of creation. Jesus completes the work of redemption and leads the redeemed into the enjoyment of the eternal Sabbath. What is Matthew saying? Fulfillment is here. Fulfillment is here. That's what I want to say to my neighbor. I hope I get the chance. Yes, you're right. He is coming. But he has come. He has come. Second question, how did they know? How did these wise men know this this information? How, How did they know that there would be a star that would rise, that would come from Judah? How did they know this? This needs to be demystified a bit, it seems to me. And the way you demystify it is simply to remember who they are. They came from the east. The commentators are pretty much universally in agreement that that means Persia. That means the realm of Cyrus and before him Nebuchadnezzar and before Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, the Assyrians and Artaxerxes. And all those Assyrian kings, that's the region of the world from which they came. But there was somebody else there in that region and had been in that region for hundreds of years. Who's the somebody else? The somebody else is the diaspora, the Jews, who centuries before, beginning in 605 B.C., had been deported from their homeland in a series of deportations culminating in the last one under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, deported where? To Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. Deported to what then became the Persian and Medo-Persian Empire. And then in 538, it was Cyrus who decreed that the Jews could come back to their homeland If you want to read about it from the consumer's vantage point, not the executor's vantage point, but the consumer's vantage point, read Daniel 9, which is where Daniel is reading in the prophet Jeremiah, and he realizes the 70 years have come to a completion, and it's time to go home. And so people begin to go back. But here's the key thing. Not everyone left. Not everyone left. People stayed. It had been three and a half generations since the first Jews came to Babylon, came to the whole region. What did they bring with them? They brought the promise. What did those do who stayed? They continued to meet together, to sing the Psalms, to hear the scriptures, 
unpacked, to hear the hope rehearsed. How do you think the wise men, and we don't know if there were three or thirty, how do you think the wise men became aware of these promises? From the scriptures, my friends. From the scriptures. They most certainly, because they were students of philosophy and religion, they were most certainly familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecy in Numbers, the prophecies in Isaiah. And let me suggest something to you, and again, as John Stott used to say when he would make editorial comments, he would say, stop taking notes because this isn't in the text. But let me suggest to you the real possibility that as these wise men from from Persia heard the promises of the Old Testament, their hearts resonated with those promises because they were hearing about a different kind of king. They were hearing about a different kind of king. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Do you have 30 minutes? I need 30 minutes to deal with the latter days. But I'll deal with it in 15 seconds. Jesus, the coming king, inaugurated The latter days. The latter days have been hanging around for a couple of millennia now. There will be a last of the latter days, to be sure. But these are the latter days. And what does Isaiah prophesy? What does God communicate through Isaiah? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. There's our invitation, brothers. Let's go find the star because we've been invited to come in. And many people shall come. And they shall say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And listen to this. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. I'm all for that. I'm all for that kind of kingdom. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the end of his kingdom and of righteousness, there will be no end. Let's go find this king because he's not like Cyrus. He's not like Nebuchadnezzar. He's not like Artaxerxes. 
He's not like Alexander the Great, and he is certainly not like Herod. Nor is he like any other earthly ruler. He brings war to an end. I am convinced it's connecting dots, to be sure. I am convinced that these wise men came seeking this king because they heard the promises from their Jewish neighbors and friends or from simply reading their holy book. And they wanted to find this king. It's not as crazy as it seems. And here's the last question. Who do these wise men represent? They represent us. They represent Gentiles. They are there as the first among a virtually numberless collection of people from every race, nation, tribe, and tongue on the face of the earth. They're just the first. But actually, if you go back to the Old Testament again, and let me give you just a couple of passages If you go back to the Old Testament, just take these two passages and do your own cross-referencing and you'll end up all over the pages of the Old Testament. This has been God's purpose all along. The first promise to Abraham. In your seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then read Isaiah 19, verses 19 and following, a passage that I alluded to during the Advent season, where God promises through Isaiah that Israel will be third among the three nations of Egypt and Assyria, and there will be an altar in the midst of each land. It's metaphorical language, folks. It's biblical metaphor. It's painting a picture of this glorious time when Jesus, who is the fulfillment of everything related to the altar, will be the altar in the midst of Israel, Assyria, and Egypt, and all the nations of the earth. And then look at Galatians 3, 27 to 29, where the Apostle Paul says there is no longer the kind of distinction that used to obtain. It's no longer male or female. You're not separated from the very presence of God by an artificial barrier. That's what he has in mind. He's a Jew and he's writing to Jews. There's no longer an artificial barrier between men and women. Women could only go so far. There's not an artificial barrier between slave and free. The slaves were ostracized and cut out. That would have made sense to Romans who valued their freedom. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. Who are the true seed of Abraham? Who are the true offspring of Abraham? Whether slave or free, male or female, Scythian, barbarian, all who have trusted in Christ are Abraham's offspring. And then read Ephesians 2, verses 13 and 14, where Paul says that in the death of Christ, those artificial barriers have been smashed to the ground forever. Forever. 
so that out of the two, Jew and Gentile, God is creating one new man. And if you want to see a picture of that one new man, go to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. And it is this vast multitude clothed in white, singing the praises of the Redeemer, having been gathered from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. That's been God's purpose from the beginning, to bring a Savior into the world who would be the Savior of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, so that those distinctions matter no more. Don't obtain. Don't abide. I don't know if you've seen Les Mis, but if you haven't, you have to. It is an incredible story, incredibly well acted, pretty well sung by most everybody. And the closing scene has haunted me from the first time I saw it. It is even more vivid on the big screen. The closing scene, the eternal state, a picture of the new heaven and the new earth. Do you hear the people sing? Lost in the valley of the night, it is the music of a people who are climbing to the light. For the wretched of the earth, there is a flame that never dies. Even the darkest nights will end and the sun will rise. They will live again in freedom in the garden of the Lord. They will walk behind the plowshare. They will put away the sword. The chain will be broken And all men will have their reward. Will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Somewhere beyond the barricade, there is a world you long to see. Do you hear the people sing? Matthew wants us to know that the one who crushes the head of the serpent and leads a people into that distant land has come. Zach said at the beginning of the service, if you know this Savior, you are so privileged. And if you don't, there is an extraordinary invitation extended to you right now that you come to a different kind of king. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, would you speak to the hearts of this gathered people? And I do beg you that for any who are here who have not stepped over the line into the new world, into the world of freedom, into the world of hope, into the world where Jesus rules and reigns, would you, dear Jesus, lead them across that line, change their hearts, open their eyes, give them grace to believe. And for the rest of us, we need the same grace to encourage and strengthen us for the journey that you've set before us. So would you give to both of us the grace that we need. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.
Let's stand together.